We're going to ever so slightly switch up what you have printed there in your bulletin. Along with the New Testament reading, the sermon passage of John chapter 7, I'd like to skip back and briefly read from the book of the prophet Zechariah. Turn to Zechariah chapter 14. We'll read the very last passage in his prophecy, which relates to the passage that we'll read, the event in Jesus' life upon earth that we'll be looking at this evening in John chapter 7. This is page 1017 of your pew Bibles. Zechariah chapter 14, and I'm reading from verse 16 through to the end of the chapter, which is the end of the book. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come up against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain upon them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain. There shall be the plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. This shall be the punishment to Egypt and the punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. And on that day there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, Holy to the Lord. And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar, and every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them, and there shall no longer be a traitor, or as the footnote says, Canaanite, in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. This is a passage in the Old Testament that relates to the Feast of Booths, which is the feast being celebrated in John chapter 7, which we'll now read from. The passage for the sermon is verses 37 through 39, but to give a little bit of context, we'll read from verse 32. Jesus, at the beginning of the chapter, is going around in Galilee, and he's not going to Judea specifically because, as John writes, the Jews were seeking to kill him. The leaders of the Jewish nation representing that nation as a whole, already in chapter 5, They had wanted to kill him because he said, I am working, uh, my father is always working and I am working on the Sabbath, making himself one with God. And that conflict between Jesus and the Jewish nation, specifically its leaders, has only increased over time, although there is still a great deal of confusion and, and wonderment about who this person really is. Jesus goes up now on, uh, secretly, um, that apparently has to do with him understanding the hostility and the desire to kill him of the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem, Jesus secretly goes up to the Feast of Booths and then makes himself known in the temple teaching during that feast. Um, I'll read from verse 32, 
when the Pharisees send officers to arrest him, and then we have the proclamation and invitation of Jesus Christ to come to him, which we look at in the sermon tonight. From verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me, and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Let's pray together briefly for the Lord to, in his grace and mercy and compassion and faithfulness, speak to our hearts and our souls this evening. Our Father in heaven, it is a joy to come into your presence with your people on your Sabbath day to be refreshed, to be refreshed by your presence and by your word. Father, we confess that we are disobedient children and our hearts are wayward. We need your admonition. We need your gospel. We need the reaffirmation of your words and promises of grace. And we need your invitation anew each week and each Lord's Day. And although you are the great and almighty God above all space and time, We pray that you would come down and condescend to speak to us. Through Jesus Christ, your eternal Son, and in the power of your Holy Spirit, open our eyes, Lord, to what we need to see. Speak to your sheep as our great shepherd. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. We have here in this passage this evening a very simple to understand 
invitation from Jesus Christ. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This is a call to us, this is an invitation from the Lord Jesus Christ to receive life. A promise that he will give us life if we come to him. It is a promise to give us true life, not the false life or the secondary life of this world, either the important but the important uh, righteous life that we can have here that is simply a shadow of life above, or the twisted and perverted sin-filled life of this world. It is true life and it is abundant life that Jesus offers in the Gospel of John and that he offers here when he says that if you drink of the water I give you, fountains will flow from within you. It is a life that does not go away. It cannot fade. It is immutable. When Jesus gives, he gives once and for all, for now and for forever. It is true, abundant, continually abiding life in the presence of God. And what Christ calls us to here, what Jesus calls us to, is to come into the presence of the living God. The God who created Adam and Eve, this whole world, out of nothing by his spoken word, that we might live in his presence and rejoice in him. Know him, use his good and bountiful gifts in this creation to enjoy them, but more than that, to enjoy him in them. And to know ourselves and who we truly are in knowing him. That is life in the presence of God. And Jesus here is presenting himself as he does throughout the Gospel of John as the true temple, the fulfillment of the shadowy temple of the Old Testament the fulfillment of that promised life that was present in some degree in the temple of the Old Testament, Christ comes and says that was simply a picture of who I am, simply a picture of the coming Messiah. It was never the real thing, but I am the real thing, and I am here, that you may come into the temple of God to live with him and know that true, abundant, continually abiding life in his presence through me, the Son of God, the true temple, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. He called out to those Jews in the temple 2,000 years ago, by the power of the Holy Spirit who was yet to be given, that call went out to the nations, to the Gentiles, and that call comes to us, that we would come to Christ, to God, with our thirst to be satisfied with his life again and again and again. The invitation that Christ issues stands here in the center of this passage. And right before it, we have a reference to the context on the last day of the feast The great day Jesus stood up and cried out. This is the context for the invitation. And then we have the invitation, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. And then we have an explanation of what Jesus means when he talks about rivers of living water, 
living water being given by implication. If you thirst, come to me and drink. And these living waters that will flow out of the hearts of those who believe. And this, John says, is said about the Spirit who had not yet been given. Not yet been given at the time that Jesus was uttering these words, but he had been given when John wrote these words. This is both a look forward from the perspective of the narrative and a look backward from the perspective of the narrator. So we want to look tonight at this passage in those three parts. First of all, the background, the context for the invitation of our Lord Jesus. Secondly, that invitation itself. And thirdly, we want to look at the explanation that John gives of what the promise of Christ is, the promise that accompanies the invitation. We read the passage in Zechariah because the background, the Old Testament background, the background of the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths is tremendously important in terms of understanding in their fullness and depth what these words of invitation from the Lord Jesus Christ mean. Um, These words are simple enough and they're adequate if you know nothing of the Old Testament background. If you simply come and hear these words of Christ or if you read them, you understand what Jesus is saying. He's saying, come to me for salvation and I will give it to you. And that's entirely true. But within the context of the Bible as a whole, there is a somewhat deeper meaning, or maybe we should just say that the picture is painted with a few more colors. It's filled out, is enriched and enlivened when we understand the Old Testament background to this invitation of Jesus Christ. And that has everything to do with the Feast of Tabernacles. Um, There were three particularly important feasts, main feasts in the Old Testament, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Passover, or Unleavened Bread, and the Feast of Weeks. And John is, refers to some of these feasts and, and to the Sabbath. He's constantly, as he builds his narrative, he's referring to the temple and temple activities, many of which are temple festivals, so these important feasts for the Jews. And he's already referred to a Passover or two at this point. He's referred to a feast that I think he doesn't name which feast it is in in John chapter 5. He's made obvious that he is particularly homing in on Jesus Christ as the temple, the dwelling place of God in the prologue. So we're approaching this passage thinking in that mindset of John is looking at the temple, the temple activities, um, the festivals of the temple to explain who Jesus Christ is as the dwelling place of God. What is important about the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles for us, are a few things. First of all, it was the feast that was most attended. Jesus has been in in this this, uh, storyline with the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders where tension is building and building and building, so much so that he has to come to this feast in secret and not let anyone know. He has a discussion with his brothers about this who don't understand him. So Jesus comes in secret to this feast, but this is the feast where all the, not only Jerusalemites, but, but those from Judea, those from Galilee, those from the dispersion are going to be coming to, more than to any other feast um, that was held in Jerusalem in, in that time. This is the best opportunity so far for Jesus to reveal himself to the entire Jewish nation, to say who he is and what his mission is. And John uses, and Jesus uses, the imagery of what's happening at the Feast of Booths to explain the person and the mission of the Messiah. You had a um, menorah lighting ceremony. It's not in Scripture, but it was practiced by the Jews at this Feast of Tabernacles. And Jesus later on speaks about how he is the light of the world. You also had a ceremony of pouring out water 
each day of this Feast of Tabernacles. And Jesus here speaks using then the imagery and the symbolism of water, the symbolism of this feast and this festival to say what is happening here. This is a festival, but it has everything to do with the temple, with the way in which we as the people of God live in the presence of God through, by means of the tabernacle or the temple system. And part of that is these festivals and feasts and their imagery. So what is the imagery of water in the Old Testament? It's a part of understanding the Feast of Booths, and we want to understand the background of the Feast of Booths in order to understand Jesus' invitation. Well, what is water in Genesis 1? After light, it's, or before light even, it's basically the first thing that's there. And water represents, and you'll see this in other places in Scripture, chaos. God creates order, creation out of chaos. This isn't an exact parallel to various other creation myths in the ancient Near East and I'll slip in for anyone concerned. Those ancient Near Eastern myths are copies and false copies of the true story of Genesis 1. But there is an aspect in Genesis 1 of we have the waters in the beginning, the unruly, untamable, unstable waters, and throughout the Bible, water can be in symbolism for that instability, that danger, that that threatening. And God brings step-by-step order to that chaos. He brings stability and dry land and structure and beauty to what was an inchoate mass. I think perhaps building on that symbolism of the uncertainty and perhaps danger of water, we'll find verses, I haven't written any down to cite, you can look them up, but you'll find verses where water is used as symbolism for um, threatenings or, or or for enemies. Um, That's in Isaiah, when I call you to go through the waters, when I call you to go through the fire. There are waters representing danger, and water is sometimes used to to speak of the enemies of the covenant people of God. Again, along those lines of sort of a negative imagery, waters can represent judgment. The flood is a judgment of all creation, a reversal of creation, where the waters of judgment sweep over the earth and bring destruction. The same thing happens... In Egypt, with the Exodus, not only do you have the Nile being cursed, the great source of life of the civilization, the empire of Egypt, but you have the people of God passing safely through the waters of the Red Sea by God's special providential protection, miraculous protection, And then the enemies of God come to follow and destroy them and are themselves destroyed by those waters of God's wrath and judgment. Water also represents life. It's the source, of course, the great rivers, and this was something that would, I think, have been obvious to anyone living in those times. The great rivers were the sources of great civilizations. Their lives were based upon those rivers that they depended on. So the Nile was the source of civilization for the Egypt. Um, The Tigris or the Euphrates, forgive my geographical um, ignorance here, the the source for the civilizations of uh, the area of Babylon or Ur or, you know, the Middle East where Iraq is today. And, of course, the Jordan was an important river for the Israelites when they went into the Promised Land. Does any of that have anything to do with Jesus offering 
to quench our thirst. Well, the obvious reference, more than anything else, if we think about the people of God and the tabernacle and the Exodus, is is to Exodus 17. Put all the other thoughts on hold for one moment. There are other passages in the Bible that speak of water as, as the source of life, a source of spiritual life. You can think of Isaiah 55 and the King James. It's, um, ho, come to me, all, all, who, all who thirst, right? I can't remember the verse exactly. Um, and there are other places. But if you go back to the history of Israel and the, the origins of the nation, um, there's a pretty clear reference to the Lord providing water in the desert for his people in Exodus 17. And you all know the story, I believe. Um, the people were thirsty in the desert. They were complaining, actually, unsurprisingly. And God commanded Moses to strike a rock, and waters would flow from the rock. The people say, why did you bring us, Moses, up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Moses brings this plaint to the Lord And the Lord says to Moses, pass before the people with elders, take the staff with which you struck the Nile. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. You shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. And they did. And this this event is then famously repeated as... um, at, at further in, in, in the story of the people of Israel as they again complain as Moses, angry with the people, strikes the rock twice. We're told in Peter that this rock is Christ. That must have something to do with, with John chapter 7. If that rock was Christ and out of that rock and that rock was a symbol of Christ and out of that rock came water for the people of God to live, um, surely we have Jesus Christ here saying, come to me and if you thirst, I will uh, give you to drink. There, surely there's a parallel there. I hope that convinces you to some degree. But there's something more to it than that because we find the story in Exodus 17 of Moses striking the rock with his rod in the middle of the story of the Exodus. Water, which is this great danger, water which can, which can be a symbol of judgment for either the people of God or for the enemies of God, water which can be a symbol of chaos, is in the desert life to this people who are following Their God leading them through the wilderness, complaining, sinful, and yet still the people of God. They have escaped from the great, mighty, cruel power of Egypt through the waters of judgment. And now, because God is tabernacling in their presence, because they have the tabernacle with them, the presence of God with them, he provides for them in the wilderness. The water that was coming from the rock was to slake their thirst. It is provision. Just as God provided manna, God is providing water for them that they may survive in the midst of a hard, long journey in which, sinful as they are, they are following the Lord, and he has promised to bring them into the promised land. I would suggest to you that this is the background we need to think of, this Exodus background, the provision of the Lord, the provision of the Lord for a sinful people as they continue to follow him. This is the background for Christ's call. Whoever believes in me, um, pardon me, before that, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink, to drink, and live, rivers of living water will flow out of his heart. It is certainly a call to salvation in Jesus Christ in the way we tend to think of it. Simply, Jesus crying out to you as an individual, come to me and drink. But more than that, it is, it is a call to the people of God, and a people of God who in this time have lost their way. They have been rebellious, they have been sinful again and again and again. And you would have thought that it would have stopped with the, um, the Bolingscott and Dutch, excuse me, the, um, 
You asked if they're going to preach in Dutch or English tonight, Sean. Apparently it's both. When the people are kicked out of the land, in English it is called the, not the exodus, the exile. The exile. You would have thought that after the exile, the people of God would have learned. And in one sense they do. And they return to the land and they don't worship false gods anymore. And yet the picture of Israel that we have in all the Gospels, and I think especially in some sense, at least I feel it more preaching through the Gospel of John. And the Gospel of John, it just hits you again and again and again. How the nation is rejecting their Messiah. How they have strayed from the true God. And they are an apostate nation, or at least an apostatizing nation. And so the call of Jesus Christ here is to this apostatizing nation. I am the true temple. You had the tabernacle and the temple in those days. You followed the Lord through the wilderness. You were sinful, and yet the Lord provided for you. And you have need of the Lord's provision again, because that system of the temple and the tabernacle failed. Not because God did something wrong, but because it was weak, because the Messiah had not yet come, and because you were sinful. And here you are rejecting me. Even in this chapter, the people of Jerusalem say, chapter, uh, verse 25, is this not the man whom they seek to kill? At the end of chapter 8, they're going to try to stone him again. In chapter 5, they're already thinking of killing him. He'll raise Lazarus from the dead, and then the council will come together and officially decide to kill him. The people of Israel are in the process of rejecting their covenant God. For, in one sense, the final time. And it is to those sinful people that Christ comes and says, You are celebrating how the Lord gave you water in the desert and provided for you and gave you life. And yet you do not know true life, but I am here to give it to you. I am here to make known to you what true life in the presence of God is. I am here as the true tabernacle. Do you thirst? That story of the people of a God in the wilderness being provided for, being given life in the desert, after passing through the waters of judgment, having their thirst slaked. This is the background for Jesus issuing his invitation If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So we see here a call, an invitation from Jesus. And we see a command. And we see a promise. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. It's an invitation. It's also a command. Oftentimes when we read in English, let him do this, let this or this happen, um, it's more of a command than it seems to be. In the original Greek, that can be a way of issuing a command, not just an invitation. And Christ is here also commanding his people and all who hear him, come to me and drink. It's not simply, you may come, it is that. But it's also, you must come. And as God always does when he gives us invitations and commands, he gives us a promise as well. What is it? Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Let's look just briefly a bit more at this invitation, this promise, and this command. 
when we hear these words in the context of the Jewish people of that time, thinking about their apostatizing, the rejection of the Messiah, their sinfulness, and Christ's gracious invitation, do you see your own heart in that as I see mine? The parallels were certainly not, as a church today, right now, apostatizing in the same way that the Jewish nation was apostatizing and rejecting Jesus and seeking to kill him. And yet the sin that lives within us and that we struggle against daily is exactly of the same kind as the sin that caused this, this nation to reject Jesus and reject this invitation. There's the hymn, I forget which one it is now, but it has those words in it, Lord, I crucified thee. And when we look in our hearts, even as those who trust in Jesus and believe in him, and we see the continual weakness, the continual failing of faith, and more than that, the continual sinful desire that lives within us for sin, the old man of Romans 7 We see that old man that wanted to kill Christ and would have killed Christ and hated him and rejected him until he in grace changed our hearts and gave us the ability and the desire to thirst in a true fashion for him and for his God and our God. Do you thirst And do you thirst in that way? We were made to thirst. We were made to live in the presence of God. We were made to have rightful desires for God and for his creation and have them satisfied in godly and righteous ways. If you don't thirst, you might be dead in your heart. You might be on drugs. Who knows? Sometimes people are dead inside. You could be that. Even then, it's simply a denial and repression of the thirst that lives within our hearts. What things do you thirst for, and what will satisfy you? And there are proper ways of thirsting for things in this world. There are proper ways to enjoy God's good creation. What things are there that will satisfy you in some, to some extent in this life, if you get them, that might have to do with a happy family life, might have to do with a job, might have to do with basically anything? What ways do you sinfully desire? the things you ought not to? And will they satisfy you? And do you thirst for Jesus? In the midst of the sin that lives still in our hearts, people of God, God has made you anew, and you are a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And those sins that live within you and that discourage you and plague you and that won't satisfy your thirsts, those lies of the devil, they are not who you are anymore. You are now that person who thirsts after Jesus Christ. That is the core, that is the essence of who you are, who you were made to be, and who you were recreated to be through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Do you forget that? Do you remember it? Do you struggle to remember it each week? 
Jesus Christ issues his invitation again, and he says, Come to me, I am the source of living water, and I will truly satisfy you. And you needn't give in to those threatenings of the devil and of the world that say that I won't satisfy, that say that they have the answers to your thirstings. Jesus says, Come to me and drink. Jesus says that to those who are not yet believers in him. If that's you, Jesus calls you. And Jesus says that to those who are believers. This isn't just come. This is come again and again and again. Come continually. The people of God in the Old Testament came into the presence of God and they had to do so continually, again and again. And part of that is because it was the old system that had to pass away. Sacrifices had to be reissued, um, had to be, excuse me, re, um, re-sacrificed. Um, the high priest could only go in once a year, etc., etc. Christ has fulfilled all of that so that we can come to him with unlimited access, but still so that we can come to him with that unlimited access again and again and again and again and for all eternity. And so the call that Christ gives here to those unbelieving Jews, the call that he gives to someone who has never believed in Jesus Christ, is the same call he issues to you as a Christian, saying each day, each Sabbath day, each week, I will give you to drink of the waters of living, uh, waters of life. Come to me and be satisfied. Come to me with your thirst. He says that to those believers who are doubting, believers who are confused, believers who don't know if they're believers. Do you thirst? It's simple. It's not a question of, am I truly saved or not? It's a question of, do you thirst? Come, come again, and come again, says Jesus. Come into the tabernacle, come into the presence of God, and drink and be satisfied by my grace and by my mercy. To those who are established believers who rejoice in their Lord, still there is that need to come again and again and again. And this is the invitation and command of Christ to you. No matter how mature you are, you're still simply a believer in the desert, walking that desert road and thirsting, and you need those living waters. This is a promise not only that we can come continually, but a promise of abundance. There's a theologian whose name you may or may not know, John Owen, who said, it's amazing how that word abundance or overabundance is constantly used in the New Testament when it speaks of God's blessings. It struck me when I read that because we often think of God giving us just enough. And in some sense, perhaps he does just enough to get through just enough, etc., day by day. In one sense, that's true. But in another sense, it's not at all true. God never gives us just enough he gives us an overabundance of spiritual blessings, and he does so daily. That's, that's what Christ is promising here. He's not saying, I'll give you just enough. He's saying, I'll give you an overabundance. I will give you far above and beyond. I will give you what will satisfy you. Your thirst will be quenched. That's the point when Jesus says, quote scripture, Isaiah, I believe, I'm sorry, I haven't preached this sermon for a while, and I should have looked that up, and I forgot to. You can look it up yourselves. Jesus quotes the Old Testament and says, Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. That's not Jesus' heart. Jesus is the source of the living water. He's saying, Out of your heart will flow living water. Why? Well, that could have to do with the fact that we're witnesses to other people, yes. But the better answer is, 
Because he gives you so much of it. He doesn't just fill you up. He fills you up to overflowing with the living water that satisfies. And so out of your heart, there is now a river that flows from that overabundance of living water, of life in the presence of God, of holy and godly satisfaction with our Creator and with our Savior that Jesus Christ gives to us. This is the promise of the Holy Spirit. So we've looked at the background to the invitation of Christ in the Feast of Booths, how it relates to the providence of God for his sinful people in the wilderness, caring for them, providing for them, giving them life by giving them water in his presence. We've looked at the invitation of Jesus Christ then in that context as he speaks to the sinful and apostatizing nation of Israel and says, I am the true temple and the true life. Come to me even now and I will give you this true life, this living water, this, this life and satisfaction in the presence of God. And now we have this commentary from John looking ahead, but looking back, but looking ahead from the perspective of the storyline right now, saying the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. A few quick points about that. First of all, the Spirit is not given until Jesus is glorified. How is Jesus glorified in the Gospel of John? The glory of Christ in the Gospel of John is the crucifixion. Jesus is glorified in the Gospel of John, not so much, this is not the emphasis of the Gospel writer, when he rises again and ascends. That's, of course, true and and there. Jesus Christ is glorified when he is on the cross. It is in the sacrifice for sin, in his obedient suffering, in his redemption of his people, that the glory of Christ is seen. And so by the same token, when the Spirit is given and given to us through this glory of Jesus Christ, the Spirit that gives us the rivers of living water does not come apart from our participation then in this crucifixion glory of our Lord. When the Spirit is given, he brings us life, he brings us union with Christ, but he also brings us suffering for the name of Christ, for the glory of Christ. And apart from the combination of those two things, the true life we have in Jesus, the true satisfaction, and the bearing of suffering, the name of Jesus Christ categorically is not made known and manifested and glorified in this world. Those two things must go together. The power of the Spirit, the life he brings us, and that life as it issues forth from the cross of Jesus Christ. Secondly, the Spirit brings in the new temple, the age of the new temple. This is why we read the passage from Zechariah. This evening it speaks of the nations going up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. And there are other indications in this chapter of how um, John is, is hinting at the inclusion of the nations, the Gentiles, in the time period, the new world that is to come, that Jesus ushers in with his resurrection. We read one of them when we read about the Jews saying to one another, is he going to go to this dispersion? Is he going to go to the Greeks? What's going to happen there? And there are these little hints throughout John. But part of the Feast of Booths is then this, this chapter in Zechariah about how the Feast of Booths will be celebrated by all nations, and all nations will come into the temple. 
And of course, in the temple, um, you had the court of the Gentiles. The temple was not simply about the Jews coming to God, but also about the Gentile nations, the symbol that they would eventually come to God. So this invitation is one that has gone out not simply to Israel. <coughs> it goes out today not simply to the church. It goes out to all the nations of the world. And as we look at this passage and as we think about our own need for Christ and how we thirst for him and long for him and how he has promised to give us those rivers of living water that we may live with him in the presence of the Father and how that goes along then with the crucifixion glory of our Lord. We're also to think about how that spirit does overflow out of the hearts of God's people in such abundance that it brings others to Christ. We have here this little Sherlock Holmes clue, this little hint that the spirit will be given over all the earth and that Jesus will satisfy the thirst of men and women all around the world as he builds his new temple, his new church. Brothers and sisters in Christ, fellow believers, fellow sinners, fellow saints, this is the encouragement for you tonight. Jesus will satisfy your thirst. He will be with you. He will give you all that you need and in superabundance. And as you struggle with doubts and fears, as you struggle in the battle for holiness and sanctification, as you struggle to be part of a church full of other sinners, as you struggle with the contentions in the world, with the hostility of the world to Christ, as you go daily, day by day, with the ups and downs of your emotions and your thoughts, Jesus is there for you every single day saying, I will give you rivers of living water in abundance, and he will make good on his promise. And one day, we'll all stand in glory seeing that he has issued that invitation, not simply to us, but to every nation of the world. And we'll rejoice as sinners whose thirst has been satisfied completely with all the trials of this life gone, with all those brothers in Christ from all over the world, Chinese, Turks, Nigerians, Belgians, Irish, what have you. And together we'll be one people of God satisfied in him and living in his presence. Jesus still cries out to us, and let us hear his words again in closing. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Amen. Let's pray. Our good and gracious God, we thank you for your bounty, for your mercy. That though we deserved your wrath, you came to us in your Son, in the weakness of human flesh, 
we struggle, Lord, with our own hearts because we desire legalistically to give something to you when all you call us to do is to receive, to drink, and then give back to you with thankfulness out of the life and strength that you have given us. We pray, Lord, that you would strengthen us, that you would strengthen this congregation and each person here, that you would strengthen me, the church in Belgium, that you would strengthen the church worldwide to do that. Make us strong in your gospel. Make us strong in your word. We pray that you would use the messages of this day, the sermons, the worship with our, with our fellow saints this day to grow us in holiness, to grow us in peace, to grow us in comfort, to grow us in our knowledge of you through your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Give us your spirit more and more unto that end. Amen.